Thank you to the team for your service today. It has been a, a great blessing. Thanks, Mark. Good evening, church, again. If you've got your Bibles, uh, I invite you to open to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Ruth, chapter 4. Last year, we went through the first three chapters of, of Ruth, and so we come to the last chapter of the book, and we will be in Ruth 4 uh, probably two weeks. But let's, uh, I'm not going to read the passage uh, right now. I'm going to allow the passage to unfold again. Every once in a while I, I do that and I haven't gotten into trouble yet. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, we're going to be looking at Ruth 4 verses 1 to 11. But let's open in prayer. Lord God, we are grateful for another wonderful day, another glorious day as your people. We are grateful that you are the God who saves, that you rescue and you, you redeem. We are so grateful for your grace and your mercy. And we know that this time is a great grace to us as well. So we pray its blessing over our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Temple Gairdner, I think that's how you say his surname, he was a Scottish missionary to Cairo around 100 years ago. And on the eve of his wedding, he wrote in his journal the, this prayer. He said this, that I may come near to her, draw me nearer to thee than to her, that I may know her, make me to know thee more than her, that I may love her with the perfect love of a perfectly whole heart, cause me to love thee more than her, and most of all, amen, amen. His prayer flies in the face of the world's idea of romantic love as that which just trumps all and consumes. True love for the world is when somebody takes first priority and first place in your life. But Gardner knew something else to be true, that to love his well, there had to be something even more primary than his love for his wife, something more foundational, and that was his devotion to his God, his love for God. He had written earlier in his life in that same journal, prayed definitely that I may be a man and have a heart one day pure and noble enough to be owned by and to own a woman's heart. Now the book of Ruth has been a beautiful story on a number of levels and one of those levels is the way in which both Ruth and Boaz have illustrated this heart, the heart of somebody pure and noble enough to own the other's heart. We've seen how the nobility of Ruth has caught Boaz's attention and captured his heart. She gave up the comforts of her hometown and of her people she left Moab to go with Naomi. She left the reasonable prospects of a future in remarriage to follow her destitute mother-in-law. And she devoted herself to Naomi and to Naomi's God, the God of Israel. And when Boaz took notice of her, the story says nothing to us of Ruth's appearance, only that he admired Ruth's kindness and her loyalty to her mother-in-law. How she had shown faith and had chosen to take refuge under the wings of God and to trust in Him. Now, after Ruth's bold proposal that we saw in chapter 3, Boaz expresses his eagerness to marry her 
and to be the kinsman redeemer that she needed. He says in 3 verse 11, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And throughout the book, Boaz has, displayed, has been displayed as the man that we hope, the man we want to be the redeemer. It's a role we'll look at more in a little bit. He's the one that Naomi and Ruth have been plotting about and hoping would redeem. In chapter 2, he's introduced as this noble man, kind to his employees, compassionate to Ruth beyond anything that she could have imagined when she found herself in his field. He gives her his protection, the safety of his field. He shows her favor and loving kindness. He is to her and to Naomi the manifestation of God's own kindness to them. And he sees in Ruth a woman who is shaped by loyalty and steadfast love. The very reason that he is attracted to Ruth is because he is shaped by the same. Their hearts are right for one another because God's loyal love for both of them is most primary, the most primary thing. And since they have met, the reader has been eager to find out, will there be a union between these two faithful and beautiful hearts? We've seen a book of many twists and turns, and we left off at the end of chapter 3 with another twist in the tale. After Ruth's bold proposal where she comes to Boaz in the middle of the night and says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer and after Boaz's eagerness, he says to her in 3 verse 12, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Something new for the reader. There are legal matters to the story, the issue of God's law. Boaz doesn't seem to buy into the Hollywood version of romance that says, I don't care about anything else. We will be together no matter what. Boaz will honor the law, he will be de devoted to God first, and he will do things in a righteous way. And it is the very honor of Boaz which makes him worthy of this noble girl's heart that seems it might endanger our happy ending. So we come to Ruth chapter 4. And instead of the Hollywood ending, instead of this couple riding off into the sunset, we see something that the world would call less romantic, maybe more boring than that picturesque wedding, but more beautiful by far. There will be a marriage, not the Hollywood way, a better way, and uh, one in a way in that, that a marriage so often does in the scriptures. It, it foreshadows something else. A great love that Christ has for his people and a love that they have for him. In this first half of Ruth chapter 4, Boaz takes center stage. And as we unpack this story, we're going to see two things in his actions that are glorious in their implications for us tonight. Number one, what we see is a risky righteousness. A risky righteousness in verses 1 to 6. But let's read 1 to 3 together. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, 
Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, this is the first mention in the whole book of Ruth of land that belonged to Elimelech. It's been in his family, and we're not sure what has been happening on this land the entire time that they were in Moab and now that Naomi is back. But it seems legally that Naomi can sell it to a kinsman redeemer. And that redeemer would have the responsibility of care for Naomi for her life. But the profit that that came from the cultivation of that land would belong to the redeemer. Now, because land was so important to the people, so important in Israel, and because of the importance of family names, what happened was when a, a husband died and left behind a deceased widow, every effort by the kinsman redeemer would be made or had to be made to um, provide for that widow an heir, an heir, an heir for the deceased to perpetuate his name. So the redeemer would take up responsibility usually of marriage to that widow and the children of that marriage would then perpetuate the name of the deceased and the child would inherit the land ultimately this is what Ruth had asked of Boaz and so Boaz goes to the city gate the city gate was the place of business the place of legal transactions It was usually in the town, the most spacious place, and it was often constructed to provide shade. They they didn't have courthouses in those towns, and so the elders of the towns would they would locate themselves, position themselves at the gates to be able to arbitrate on legal matters and to be witnesses to transactions. So Boaz takes his seat ready for business. There's only one way in and out of the city, so eventually the Redeemer comes by and Boaz says to him, turn aside, friend, sit down here. What he calls him in Hebrew actually doesn't mean friend at all. The words are peloni almoni. That's what it literally is in the Hebrew, peloni almoni. And scholars say there's no meaning to that phrase. It's a rhyming phrase that has no, it's a meaningless phrase. We have similar phrases in English. It's like he's saying, sit down, Mr. Hodgepodge, or sit down, Mr. Fiddle-Faddle. That's what it means. It's like the author is going to lengths not to name him. He's just Mr. So-and-so. Don't you find that interesting? In the story of Ruth, there is a nearer redeemer, and we don't even know his name. Some scholars say, that because this man would later refuse to perpetuate the name of the dead, the author saw fit not to perpetuate his, if he even knew it, and his name has long since been forgotten. Turn aside, Mr. So-and-so, we have business to discuss. And Boaz follows the legal prescriptions to a T. He explains the availability of the land of Elimelech through his aged widow. He says, if you redeem it, you can have the land. And Mr. Poloni says, okay, I'll do it. And because you are reading the story with affection, at this moment your heart sinks. Boaz, what are you doing? 
But wait, this is the moment, right? Boaz is going to pull out his sword and say, well, you know what? I can't live without Ruth, and I challenge you to a duel to the death. No, Boaz is going about things in a righteous way. He will honor the law. And there's a moment in this story where we wonder if Boaz's righteousness will frustrate everything. John Piper calls this the the threat of ill-timed righteousness. Not negatively, but practically speaking, there are times in life where it is not sin that brings about frustration, but righteousness brings about frustration of your plans, maybe your hopes. Righteousness sometimes stands in the way of your upward mobility in your business. Righteousness sometimes stands in the way of of the relationship that you had hoped to have with somebody else. So many want to use obedience to God as a bargaining chip. If I obey, I expect reward from the Lord. Now there is always, there is always reward and blessing for obedience to God's law, but it is not always in the ways that we want. The payoff isn't always applicable to our physical well-being. Sometimes it's actually detrimental. And faithfulness to Christ will sometimes mean trouble in the world, but we are called to that faithfulness and that righteousness simply because our hearts are set on Him and devoted to Him. We believe and we trust that devotion to Christ will always bring greater blessing than compromise with the world ever could. When I started out in the ministry Sheree painted a a beautiful picture of a tree for me, and on this painting was a a reference to Proverbs 11.30, which says, the fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. So we know no matter what the cost in earthly terms of doing what is right, we entrust our lives to God, knowing that he has our lives in his hands, and we believe that With our righteousness, he can grow something grander and greater than we can imagine. Well, at this point in the story, Boaz is not going to give up. He does have a trick up his sleeve. And he exploits a difference between his heart and the other man's heart. In verse 5 and 6, Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth. And you know he raises his eyebrows at this point. Ruth, the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You see, unlike Naomi, Ruth is of childbearing age. So all of a sudden the deal isn't You know, just care for the aging widow until she passes away and then you will have full rights to the field yourself. The deal is marry Ruth and try to bear a child for her to perpetuate the name of her deceased husband and ultimately that child will inherit the land. That is a different deal. Additionally, worthy woman or not, there is the matter of Ruth's lineage and you wonder if this is also in his mind Her lineage is reiterated so many times in this book. It is is clearly pinpointed by the author. She is a Moabite woman. Maybe he's thinking, I won't sully my inheritance with a child of a Moabitess. Remember, there is not one positive connotation in all of Scripture related to, to these people. 
And so we see the difference. Boaz is eager to do all that he can for the good of this family in obedience to the law. Mr. So-and-so, who seems to be doing the, the logical thing, he seems upstanding, but his arithmetic of obedience just works a little bit differently. He lives on a different guiding principle. This is the arithmetic of so many. When we approach righteousness, our question sometimes is, what's in it for me? Will it fulfill me? What is it going to cost me? Rather than the arithmetic of risky righteousness that takes God at his word. Ian Duguid in his um, commentary says this, in doing the arithmetic, we get the answers as completely wrong as he did because we have left God entirely out of the equation. We calculate and protect ourselves and insist that two and two can only ever equal four, and we may never know the blessing that we have lost. So this takes place, and this man walks off the pages of Scripture, and the right to redeem will pass to Boaz. And number two, what we see in verses 7 to 11 is a costly redemption. That's what the author makes clear throughout all of this redeeming Ruth comes with a sacrifice. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Mahlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native, his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. Now it's not the romantic wedding ending that the world wants. All this talk of legal rights and the acquiring of widows. But we are blind if we don't see here the grand glory, the great beauty, the deeper romance that is going on. John Piper has written a series of poems in a book he's titled Under the Wings of God, based on the book of Ruth. And in, in this book, he writes a poem that I believe helps us to see and feel the, the romance, the glory that is here. He says this, As soon as light shone on the low gate leading into Bethlehem, I gathered elders and to them laid out my case, and to the head whose right preceded mine I said, Naomi's land is yours. The claim, you marry Ruth and keep the name of Mahlon in your line. Declare your will, for I am next, and swear that I will take her if you can't. I wondered how the Lord would grant the longing of my heart and by another providence comply with Ruth's appeal in my desire. And then I learned, he said, acquire it for yourself. The land I would have, for it is very good. But Ruth, she is a Moabite, and we are Jews. It isn't right. The land is yours, and Malon's name, for what it's worth, and Ruth, and shame. 
He took his shoe and gave it to me in the gate. I turned and threw it out and out to Ruth among the crowd. She caught it like a wreath and bowed. I quieted the shouts and cried, What do you think of this, my bride? And she replied, I think the Lord has fought today and with his sword has stuck a sin up on the gate and hung it on our wedding date. As for the badge of shame, you tell, the line of Judah bears it well and will for generations yet to come. The book of Moses set me free. There is mercy in the law of God beyond my skin. By faith, God makes a person right, be she a Jew or Moabite. There is the grand beauty of this passage, of the whole story. Boaz is not put off by her lineage, not put off by his sacrifice, for he rejoices not in the purchase of land, but in the heart and the hand of the Moabite. You see, for redemption to take place in the story, the Redeemer needs to have three things. He needs to have the right to redeem, the resources to redeem, and the resolve to redeem. Now, he has legally acquired the right from the nearer Redeemer. He has the resources as the Lord of the harvest to supply the needs of this family. And finally, he has what the nameless had not. He has the resolve. Next week when we finish, or not next week, in a couple weeks when we finish off this book, the author is going to lift our eyes to the bigger story that's at play. This has never only been about one little family in Israel. There is a boy who's going to be born. And in unusual fashion, even in the Old Testament scripture, he is called a redeemer. The lineage of this boy is traced down to a king. The, the Redeemer of Israel and the Father of the greatest Redeemer, the great Redeemer of all mankind. The book of Ruth lifts our eyes to another horizon, for it is a shadow of a greater redemption to come, a shadow of our redemption. Christopher Ashe, in his commentary, says, In the bigger story of the world, every single blessing which we experience and anticipate comes only because there has been a far costlier redemption, one that has not merely endangered a man's estate, but cost a man's life, won for us by the precious blood of Christ. Like Boaz, Jesus possesses the three things necessary for redemption. He claimed the right to redeem. Legally, we were by nature children of wrath, separated from a holy God by our sin that enslaved. By rights, we should have perished in sin. The law standing in accusation of us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ obtained the legal right to redeem. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is unique fully God and fully man. He alone can be the mediator of a new covenant. He alone in heaven and earth can do it. He must redeem or there is no hope. There is no closer redeemer. He took on our sin. He bore our shame. He was tempted in every way yet without sin. He is our sympathetic high priest, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And Jesus has the resources to redeem. Having taken on flesh in the form of a servant, he did what we could never do. He lived the perfect, sinless life in obedience to the law, and he died the death that we deserved to make atonement for us. 
He rose again and he says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Through his death and cry, it is finished. And through his resurrection, his vindication, he is the Lord of life who possesses the riches of heaven's mercies greater than all our sin. He has the resources to redeem. And finally, HBC, does our Jesus have the resolve to redeem? The Lamb of Judah became the Lamb who was slain. Why? Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us. His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we know that the cross is about the glory of God. We champion that truth. We know that the cross is about the propitiation of his holy wrath against sin. But we must never forget that the cross exists because of his love. Because of his resolve, his desire to purchase us, our freedom forever, our peace forever, our belonging forever to him. As Gerdner prayed that his heart might be pure and noble enough to be owned and to, to be owned and to own a woman's heart, as Boaz modeled that heart, so Christ fulfills what Boaz dimly foreshadowed. He has the right. He has the resources and he has the resolve to redeem. He is our great kinsman redeemer. He is our willing one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. And as Boaz won Ruth's hand and heart, so Christ has won our love and our devotion through his love. Does he have your heart tonight? It is his love poured out into us through his spirit that is the power for our righteousness, our obedience, our sacrifice, our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, our faithfulness, our self-control. Do you know that love? Is it working itself out in your life? Everything changes when the gospel has taken hold of you and his love fulfills your heart and mind. Here is love, vast as the ocean we sang, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember. Who can cease to sing his praise? He will never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. Let's pray. Christ, we glory in the fact that you are our Redeemer. We rejoice in our ransom. And we are taken captive by the love that you showed for us, the resolve that you had that you would own the heart and the hand of the Moabite. We who rebelled against you, we're separated from you because of our sin. Who sin every day and rebel still. You showed the resolve to redeem us. And Lord, we will never get over that fact. For all eternity, we will sing your praise. For all eternity, all creatures in heaven will sing your praise. You are our great redeemer and we love you. Amen.